Welcome to the virtual coffee break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. My name is Martin Mangual, Dairy Educator with MSU Extension. In today's episode, Senior Educator Stan Moore will interview Dr. Adam Kantrovich, Extension Specialist from Clemson University. They will discuss some of the novel government programs available to help farmers withstand the impact of the novel COVID-19 pandemic. Great information ahead if you are interested in these programs. You will learn how to qualify, how to apply it, and how you can use the available funds to help your operation. Stan? My name is Stan Moore with Michigan State University. In today's virtual coffee break, we're going to talk about federal programs that have been made available to farms directly related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today I have with me Dr. Adam Kantrovich, Extension Associate Professor for Agribusiness at Clemson University Cooperative Extension. I had an opportunity to work with Adam when he was here in Michigan and have continued to work with him in his current role as we and a group of specialists and educators from both MSU and Clemson work with farmers to understand how these programs can help them and their farms. Welcome, Adam. Thank you, Stan. Glad to be here. So Adam, when we talk about COVID-19 related programs for agriculture, give us a quick listing of the programs that farmers should be aware of. There's a slew of them and it's kind of like trying to learn the alphabet soup uh, as we had to do as, as children about the old Depression era programs. And the most recent ones have been CFAP, PPP, IDLE, and any number of other programs. Now, of course, those acronyms are vary in, in what agencies that they are running through vary as well. The first couple that really came out was the PPP, Paycheck Protection Program, and then the IDLE, the Emergency Injury Disaster Loan Program. Those have been administered through the SBA program, Small Business Administration. And then we have the CFAP, which is the Coronavirus Food uh, assistance program that's being administered through the USDA. Then there have been a few other programs that have been developed, but they're really more along the lines of beneficial tax incentives for individuals. And these have all come about through various pieces of legislation, including the CARES Act, the Families First Act, and other acts that have continued to come about for a while. They were coming almost every two, three weeks. And then, of course, we have the USDA Food Box Program. And those are all programs on top of what we normally think of for USDA Farm Service Agency programs. Yeah, so really all these programs are kind of meant to provide a support net or an, an improved support net for farms that are going through really crazy times, uh, ups and downs, and uh, really uh, to use an overused word, unprecedented times uh, that we find ourselves in here. But uh, it's certainly been difficult for agriculture. And, and in some situations, uh, certain segments of agriculture were already having uh, some pretty, uh, pretty tough times economically. Uh, that, that's without a doubt. And anybody within agriculture is, is very well aware of the issues we've had over the last three, four, five years. And, and so some of these programs have incorporated and have considered some of that, but it, most of these programs have been directed specific to the issues that have been brought up by, of course, the, the coronavirus pandemic. And so, it, it, and each one of these are run just a little bit differently. Yeah, and have interactions that, uh, you know, we try our best to understand and communicate to producers. And 
even beyond the, the federal part, there's even some programs specific to Michigan. Uh, and one of those includes the Michigan Ag Safety Grants, um, which are currently still going on. We'll talk about those a little bit later. But for now, let's, let's talk about a couple of the programs with the biggest impacts, Adam. Um, looking at those that uh, have a big economic impact and also maybe have had some recent things occur, maybe some updates for producers today. So let's start with a Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP. You know, for many producers, this program has had the largest financial impact, and it also has a fast approaching deadline. It does. The deadline's coming up here uh, on September uh, 11th, is it? Yes, it is. Um, and, you know, originally the application deadline was supposed to be August 28th, and that's been extended. And the, the CFAP program is paying producers for potential losses that have incurred due to the coronavirus pandemic. And the funding for it is coming through two different sources. And so that begins to complicate trying to figure out you know, am I eligible? Do I raise a product that is eligible uh, for a payment? And then how those payment equations are developed uh, to determine what is a producer actually being able to receive. And the CFAP program is continuing to change and be updated through the addition of additional crops that have been found to have been affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Um, as well as potentially with some crops changing what the payment rate is. We probably can't write enough articles to keep up with all the changes. So where can farms go to find out more information about that particular program? Three main sites um, in general with anything that has been pandemic oriented, uh, us here at Clemson, as well as you uh, at Michigan State University, both of our teams have developed some very good uh, websites that are placing information uh, for farms, ag employers, etc., up there uh, to be able to receive that information, as well as if it's specific for CFAP, uh, you can go actually also for the most updated information to farmers.gov slash CFAP. Our Clemson cooperative webpage for these types of programs is www.clemson.edu slash extension slash COVID-19 slash agribusiness dash COVID dot HTML. I'm guessing they can probably Google they search. Can do a, they can do a Google search, Clemson agribusiness, and it'll, it'll come up, you know, or Clemson agribusiness COVID dash 19, and, and you'll get to our site. When I looked at some of the coronavirus food assistance program, uh, areas. Um, one of the things that struck me early on, especially for some of our producers, is they may consider themselves like, well, I'm a beef producer, or I'm a dairy producer, or I'm a lamb producer. So that may direct them to one particular part of that program. But oftentimes, these producers are not just a dairy producer, they're also a crop producer. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I found some producers that, you know, may have been missing that in their initial discussions with Farm Service Agency. That's exactly right. And Stan, you've got a dairy background, and I've dealt with a number of dairy farms and that industry. And one of the things that, you know, depending on the program, talking to them about, uh, you know, always discuss that every dairy producer is also a beef producer, right? What do we do with our cull cows? What do we do with our bull calves? Those are typically ending up in the beef supply. And so um, you are considered a beef producer from that standpoint. 
And many of our dairy farms are also raising crop. Now we may not be raising corn for what we consider our traditional commodity market, but we're raising that for silage purposes, uh, as well as a number of other crops. And those crops unto themselves may be eligible uh, for a CFAP payment, even if it's getting turned into silage to be fed. And so you have to work with the FSA office and the FSA office has some equations out there to use to determine the number of bushels that have gone into every ton of silage to help figure out a, uh, a potential eligibility and payment rate for your crops. So it's very important to make sure and realize that. And on the beef side of the CFAP payments, has broken down the different types of beef based on weight, age, and purpose, and uh, the different payment rates for that from the different sources of income. Be in contact with the FSA and be in contact with your local extension agents and ask them for assistance with regards to that. And hopefully uh, most places uh, you'll be able to find uh, who to work with or they'll put you in touch with somebody to work with. Really discuss the all of your operation with those people so that they can help you figure out a Am I really getting all that I can out of this program? Um, and then be sure to go back and check, you know, our websites, also that farmers.gov website where it has tables about what's included and what's not included, because you may be surprised to find out that uh, a crop that you're raising that wasn't eligible in the past is now eligible. And so that's, uh, you, you know, hopefully you'd hear back from your farm service agency, but they've got a lot of farms they're dealing with. Um, they may not catch that. And so you want to make sure that you're, you're looking at what am I producing, uh, making sure before that deadline that you've got all of your, uh, your crops in there, your livestock in there for payments. Exactly. And especially as it relates to anybody that's also raising specialty crops is listening. You know, there are three different categories that a particular crop might have been eligible for a, a type of payment. There's three different categories of payments. And some of those crops may have been eligible for one category, but not the other two or two categories and not for one and have become eligible or a change in, in payment rate for any one of those particular categories as well as the addition of new eligible crops for different things. And so go to that farmers.gov slash CFAP, look at the tables and determine if you have to make a change to an application that you've already provided to the USDA FSA office. Great, great. That's great updates, Adam. I appreciate that. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about another program um, that's had a lot of impact, been used by a lot of farms and businesses, and that's the Paycheck Protection Program. And while the application deadline for this is passed, um, there's still ongoing discussions about loan forgiveness. Things seem to come out on a, on a regular, fairly regular basis on, on changes, uh, interpretations, new ways of looking at this. So what can you share with us about that program today, Adam? The first thing is I'm going to recommend that uh, most farms that uh, wait until, I mean, obviously work with the loan officer. So one of the big things to understand with the Paycheck Protection Program and those that participated in that are very well aware of that you do not go direct to the SBA to deal with this program or to participate in this program. You had to go to a local lender that was an uh, SBA approved lender to be able to receive any funds for this program. And so work with your lender. But right now, because of the fluidity of what's taking place, it's probably best for anybody that has participated in this program to hold off as long as you can 
before dealing with the application for forgiveness. And one of the newest pieces, as you started to intimate, um, that came out within the last week or two is dealing with rental payments. And of course, the PPP program allowed for rent uh, as one of the non-payroll cash expenses that PPP funds could be used for and was eligible for forgiveness. These new rules, or what we call an IFR, an interim final rule that came out from the Small Business Administration early on last week, has put on a couple of caveats to that. And as many of us within the industry know that you know, farmers typically may own land outside of the operating entity or the farm itself, and then the farm pays rent back to the owners of the land, which are also owners of, of the actual farming activity operations that are taking place. In this interim final rule, it says that any rent that is going back to a related party, and this would be considered a related party, may not qualify for forgiveness except for if there is a mortgage on the land, only the interest of that mortgage is, is the equivalent of what the rent would be forgiven for. And so if I paid rent to myself for $10,000 and I had a loan on that land that I'm receiving the rent for, and the interest on that land, it was only $1,500, the forgiveness eligibility for the proportion of that rental payment is only going to be up to that $1,500 interest payment. Like a cap on it. So it basically maxes out at whatever the interest rate is for the mortgage for that eight-week period of time, correct? For the coverage period, because we also have to remember, right, there was another law that came out that actually expanded, allowing some individuals, if they wish, depending on when they got in line or when they participated in the program, whether they're going to use the initial eight week or if they're going to move on to the 24 week slash December 31st date. Okay. Um, and so that, so you are correct. And so it, it's going to be the, the equivalent of the interest value during that coverage period is going to be the maximum amount. And so for those farms that don't have any mortgages, and you paid yourself a rental payment, what that means is none of that rent is going to be able to be forgiven. You know, those are issues that you may want to take a look at. And another reason why I'm saying wait on the application process for forgiveness until the very last minute in case more information comes out, new laws are going to be passed. We know that there's going to be some additional bills and is this going to change? It'd be good to let's find out if that's going to change. Um, or what are you going to have to do? Were there other expenses that would have counted for forgiveness that those funds could be used for other than that rent? Uh, yeah. The other piece to understand, too, is sometimes we have multiple enterprises and there are loans between one enterprise and another. Right. That's pretty typical mm -hmm. within our industry as well almost a single sentence uh, within this interim final rule. It also states that any interest being paid to a related party on mortgages um, is not forgivable as well. If I read the rule uh, correctly, what they've done is they've tried to say, okay, we want all businesses to be on the same playing field. So if you've set up these multiple entities on your farm, um, you're going to put them all together like they were one for this program and say, okay, 
uh, at least for this part of it, what can be paid. We're not going to let you pay rent to yourself. Uh, we're not going to let you pay interest to yourself and then be able to, uh, to be able to get forgiveness on that. Exactly. Because then in, in theory, that would allow you to essentially be paying yourself a wage above uh, what was allowed within, within the rules right. for self-employed individuals. And you're exactly right. They essentially, you know, rent to a related party versus rent to a landowner that is not a related party. Um, they are looking at as two different, different things. Yeah. They don't want an individual being able to take advantage of the program. Yeah. Another place where we do this a lot is with uh, farm transitions, right? So we're transferring the farm from senior generation to junior. We set up a LLC or the farm sets up an LLC and in uh, the LLC uh, rents land from uh, the senior generation. So it's, it's a common occurrence. Um, so it's something it's a big deal uh, that we need to be on the lookout for uh, if that's how we were planning on submitting for uh, forgiveness. That's exactly correct. So we just have to make sure, and you might be okay depending on the situation, but facts and circumstances uh, really have to be looked at. So you really need to work with somebody that's knowledgeable in this area to be able to help you garner what you need to for preparation of that forgiveness application. Well, thank you, Adam. That's some great uh, input on those two programs. I did want to also mention a program that's specific to Michigan here, and that's the Michigan Agriculture Safety Grants. And it's a pretty new thing this summer that basically allows employers to get up to $1,000 for each employee. And it's split into two grants. So if you have less than 10 employees, um, there's the MEDC Small Farm Safety Grant Program. And then for farms and agricultural processors with 10 or more employees, they can apply for the Agriculture Safety Grant. Um, these grants are specifically to help employers deal with the extra cost of keeping employees safe during this COVID-19 pandemic that we're in. They can be used for things like testing costs, that whether that would be on-site testing or, you know, sending people to a place to get tested uh, for personnel to administer those tests. It could be to make changes to your facility in order to protect your workers against COVID-19. That could be things like increased sanitation. It could be upgrading uh, safety measures in their housing, could be dividers between employees, a um, number of things you could pay for with that. And then it could also be used for personal protection equipment and supplies for employees. So a number of things that that could be used for, even the, the medical stuff that you might need, like thermometers, um, staff supplies, that type of thing, all can be used for that, that $1,000 per employee max for those grants. So MEDC, as I mentioned, is the provider of that program. Uh, there is an application process if you grow right to the MEDC site. And then under COVID-19, those grants are, are still eligible for application at that MEDC site. And they're awarded through the MEDC Farm Safety Program or the Agriculture Safety Program for expenses that have been incurred by the eligible applicant between June 1st, 2020 and September 15th, 2020. So we don't know where the deadline at this point is for that, but you need to expend the money between June 1st and September 15th of this year. So that's coming up here pretty close too. So if you haven't taken a look at those grants, I'd encourage you to look at those for paying some of those supplies that you need 
uh, to keep your workers safe. So that's one program specific to Michigan. But before we go, Adam, there's another program, uh, another kind of event around this COVID-19 thing that certainly got a couple of phone calls headed my way in the last couple of days. And that's about the payroll tax holiday, if you will. Um, something that uh, President Trump signed just recently. I'm getting calls from employers. What do we do with this? And thought I'd bring that up to you today as kind of a, an aside to uh, get your thoughts on it. Yeah, not a problem. And, and I think the first thing is to kind of separate because one of our previous pieces of legislation had in there that allowed employers not to have to put in some of those payroll taxes in and at least push back when they have to pay those and give time to those employers. Uh, and then there's also intermingling in, in issues between that and idle and PPP and stuff like that. But right. there was an executive order that was signed by the president for what he called as a tax holiday, but this is specific for employees. And it only applies to um, the social security portion that an employee has to pay into social security. And there's a number of issues with um, this particular program. And one is if, in fact, an employer works with the employees and says, all right, we will not apply that money that was supposed to come from your paycheck and go into Social Security, and instead we will give it to you, all right, and that would be from September through the end of the year, that employee is going to have to pay that in essentially the first three months of 2021. So in essence, they're going to have to have double the amount what would have been normal for the first three months out of the year coming out of their paycheck and going into Social Security. Hmm. That being said, it is the employer's decision not the employee's decision on whether or not they want to do that. And there are numerous reasons why it would not be advantageous for an employer to do that. One is uh, dealing with the software changes. If they're using software, um, it's, it's not built into the software to be able to do something like that. And so that's going to make it difficult, uh, especially if they have to do everything manually. Uh, second, what happens if that was being done and then the employee quits? Uh, the employer is going to have to work with the employee, get the money from the employee and th that they no longer have, and still put the money into Social Security on that employee's behalf. And there's a few other issues as well. And so it, it's really not very advantageous for uh, the employer to do it, and in reality, is, is not very advantageous for the employee either. And you're talking about the 6.2% amount that goes into Social Security is what we're talking about. Right. So in essence, it becomes a, a zero interest loan uh, with a pretty quick uh, payment due here the first of the year that the employee might be a little surprised that... Uh, all of a sudden, hey, I've got a chunk of money I need to pay back into the system. And, and to my understanding, the only way that could change uh, to forgiveness would require congressional action. Something we're correct. We may or may not see, I guess, depending on how pessimistic you, you're at about right. uh, that working together. So, yep. Exactly. I'd be pretty pessimistic. And that being said, if, if the employee, if it's not paid back, um, 
by uh, a specific date next year. I want to say April 1, I believe it is, um, or the, in April, uh, then interest and penalties do begin to accrue. And so there's, there's still questions surrounding that. And as you said, take congressional action to actually forgive that. But when you stop and think about it with the issues in Social Security requiring it be funded for the payouts and everything else long term, mm -hmm. if it gets forgiven, where is the money that should have been deposited going to come from? Right. And okay. so that would have to be a part of that discussion. So um, I would find it not impossible, but I would find it relatively difficult given the present situation that we see going on across the country and expenditures and everything else to, uh, that would occur. Sounds like the wise course of action is to uh, to wait and see on this one and to find out uh, more details of how that might impact your business. I did want to remind listeners that uh, there are a number of resource links that are out there. Um, we've certainly talked about some of them at the federal level. In addition to that, both uh, Michigan State University and, and Clemson have websites I think the best way to get to the MSU one for me is I put in uh, MSU or Michigan State University Farm Management. That'll take you to our uh, webpage and there's a link right at the top of that webpage that says Agribusiness Resources for Novel Coronavirus. And uh, you can click on that link. It uh, shares all of the uh, information that we have, the news articles, um, a listing actually of all of the, the federal programs there. Uh, both COVID-19 and other federal programs that, that might be of interest to farms, um, and then some links to, uh, to Clemson resources as well. So encourage you to check that out. And Adam, if you want to, uh, best way to search for your site is probably a Clemson uh, Agribusiness Extension Team, and uh, we, you, should, you should be able to find our site pretty quick. Great. Sure, appreciation. Uh, say thank you to all the listeners out there today at this uh, virtual coffee break with the MSU dairy team and especially our special guest, Dr. Adam Kantrovich. Thank you, Adam. You are very welcome. Thank you. Thanks to Stan and Adam for that information. For additional questions, you can reach Stan Moore by email at morest at msu.edu. That is morest at msu.edu. Additional information can also be found in our Michigan State University Extension website with a quick Google search or your search of preference. Search for MSU Extension Farm Business Management and that will take you to multiple resources within MSU Extension. Join us next week when educator Paola Basigalupo interviews Dr. Angela Buelo regarding milk fever and what is new research on managing those transition cows. So we ask that you please join us then. Thank you.